0: Would you join me in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 22, 1 Samuel, chapter 22, and I want to read verses 1 through 5, the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. I'm reading this morning from the NIV version. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Abdulam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Herath. Amen. You may be seated. For the next little while, I just want to talk about, still dealing with the topic of words, how to turn your caves into cathedrals. Turning caves into into cathedrals. One of the most persuasive readers I think I've spent time reading repeatedly is the late Victor Frankel, who provides for us a very pointed view in reference to how to survive in what he experienced Alkowitz and Descartes in Southeast Germany, the concentration camps. He created what we later term to describe as the logotherapy in which Franco argues that one manages to survive a dark moment in which they certainly cannot describe when they come to understand the meaning of existence. They come to realize that although the moment appears to be extremely dark, there is a reason for my existence even though the existence is in the moment of darkness. Frankl later introduced us to a theory that is opposite of his predecessor, his teacher, Sigmund Freud, who argued from the perspective of the will to pleasure when Frankl said, for me, it's more about the will to meaning. Trying to understand why am I in the state of being that I am in. Amazingly, Frankl says in the transition of losing his parents, his wife, and his children, he wrestled repeatedly trying to figure out why did he survive beyond his descendancy? Why take his mother and father, take his wife, take his children? He raises the question, perhaps not directly to what we would define as God, but at least in his own soul, he wants to know how is it that I have survived and what is the meaning of my existence? He sort of leads us to kind of understand why at times when we find ourselves in very dark moments and we look over the spasm of time and realize that there have been many who have fallen deaf to the death victim of that kind of situation and yet we have managed to survive thus far. If it had been John Newton, he would have interjected by saying, it was grace that has kept me safely thus far, and it's going to be grace that will lead me on. But yet, Franco moves us from that state of the concentration camp to the state of freedom in understanding that his meaning of existence is wrapped in the idea of the language he uses to keep himself inspired. He understood that the camp may say one thing, but his soul has to say another. He realized that if he succumbed to the pressures and the language of the camp, the language of the concentration camp was death, it was defeat it was overwhelmingly providing evidence that he too would end in the same fate. But something within me, that, that, that's, that's what my grandmama would say, something within me that holdeth the reins, something within me I cannot explain, enabled Frankel to realize that his life is far more deeper than a concentration camp. And even when life attempts to drown you, that your finality might be death, there ought to be something within that is determined not to die, at least not this way. There is something in me that is determined to stand up and be still and know that the God to which I have subscribed is more powerful than death all by itself. And so I I have to learn, and I've continued to learn from Frankl, that weeping certainly does endure for the night. But there is something in my soul that helps me hold out that joy is showing up, going to show up in the morning. The challenge I have is to hang out until the morning comes. And when the morning comes, I know then that my help has showed up and that God will not leave me in that space where darkness shall abide. I, I, I got captivated by this story in 1 Samuel 22. It's an episode in David's journey that sort of leaves us in familiar territory. David now is in a space that is described in the text as the Cave of Abdullam. The cave in the Bible is an interesting place. is often sort of the description of three different gatherings. One, it's a place where... It has been identified for burial. When you read Genesis 23, Abraham purchased what's called the cave of Machpelah, that he might have a burial spot for his wife Sarah and himself. And later we will read that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob occupies this cave-like tomb. We also learn that the cave is a place of residency, or one might argue as refuge. When you read Joshua chapter 10, there were five kings to which Joshua had defeated and they ran for their lives and they found a cave called Makeda in which they resided themselves hoping that they might escape the death blow of Joshua's hand. They felt that the cave could serve as a place of refuge where they'd find protection and they'd be able to hide out until the storm has passed over. But then there was another place and that perhaps is more descriptive when we come to David here in 1 Samuel 22, the cave also seemed to serve as a place of worship, a place where one gets alone and they are, appear to be isolated in a space where there's no one else there but them. They are alone with themselves, their soul, their issue, and they've got to find a way to celebrate the God of their salvation. And David is in such a situation. You have to read chapter 20 and 21 to understand what's happening to David as typically he's been on the run for Saul for a long time. Saul is jealous because David, a young boy at the time, comes down and does a man's job in a boy's clothes. Saul is the king of Israel, but because the obstacle is larger than Saul, he reneges from being who he represents to be, not just a king, but a warrior. When Goliath from Gath shows up, and begins to breathe threatening words to Israel Saul retrieves with the the rest of the army of Israel and goes back into town and here comes this young shepherd boy whose job is nothing more than to tend the sheep of his father in the field puts his nose where a boy's nose should not be in the man's business He listens to the taunting of Goliath. This, some say nine and a half, others say ten and a half feet giant. And he listens to his words, which breeds death, threatening words. He he has a word of his own. And his word comes back Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? who breathes threatenings to the God of Israel. He steps forward as if he is larger than Goliath to handle him. In fact, his youthful ignorance gives him such inspiration. He has the nerve as weaponry to pick up five smooth stones with his slingshot in hand And that becomes his defense mechanism to handling his giant. Logic and rationale says that David is beyond ignorance. He might be in the category of full stupidity. No one fights a giant like Goliath with five smooth stones with the assistance of a slingshot. But maybe somewhere in David's history he had heard, if one can put to flight a thousand, then two ten thousand. Maybe somehow he realized, well, based on my own evidence of the God of my father, I, I had an encounter with a bear, and God amazingly showed up and helped me defeat the bear. I had an encounter with a lion and God showed up and helped me wrestle with the lion. Goliath just happens to be another notch in the belt in terms of being victorious. So he goes down before the giant. In fact, the giant sort of takes David as a sense of laughter and hollers back out at Israel, Is this the best you've got to send to war? Make you, I'll make you, I'll make you a little promise here. I I tell you what, we're going to work this out. If I win, you're going to serve the Philistines. But if you win, which is not likely to happen, of course, uh, I'll serve you. Well, unbeknowing to Goliath, uh, that David was in tune with the God who specializes in you being the underdog yeah God seems to carry in the text the idea that he loves to interject his power in the life of the underdog so David stands in front of the Goliath and and I'm thinking that it's gonna take not only five smooth stones but but quite a bit more and I hope he got some more ammunition hanging around somewhere because Five stones is just not going to be able to handle a single giant. But I understand from engineering that when you understand the idea of preciseness and when you are strategic in terms of trying to hit your target, it don't take but one shot if you do it right. And David, sure enough, loaded up and delivered one shot. And to make a long story short, he dropped the giant. <laughs> that was a shouting point right there, and I'll tell you why. Because there have been a lot of times when I was a David in front of a Goliath and didn't have a whole lot to work with, but a God of salvation who knew how to specialize in underdog mentality. And all I had to do was just wind up with one simple prayer. Lord, don't know how this is going to work out. Don't even know if I'm going to be able to survive this thing. But I'm going to put my hand and your hand. And here we go. And when I wind up one time. Here's what the old preacher say. One time for the Father who created everything. One time for the Son who redeemed everything. And one time for the Holy Spirit who sustains everything. And when I let that thing go by faith, the next time I looked around, what was above me now stands beneath me. Because the giant has fallen down right before my presence. I'm not the only one who's had some giants in your life and God has brought them down right before your presence. You, you kind of wonder how that thing was going to work out. But there he was right in time and on time. God brought about <clears throat> the dropping of the giants. Well, the crowd left singing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. You think that's interesting you read that story closely David didn't have but one major victory and that was over Goliath how do they translate that into tens of thousands and yet Saul had probably had many victories he had won in war very simple. When God steps in to do the miraculous in terms of deliverance, it just looks so good that it seems like it's been a lot of wars that God has brought victoriously in your life. So they were shouting about how David was victorious, and Saul caught a jealousy attitude. Saul said, from this day forward, I cannot permit this boy who did a man's job and even neglected to wear my armor, I can't let him exist in the same kingdom. He has got to go. You you do know that there are some people who absolutely cannot stand the progress in your life. There, There are some folk who have a jealous spirit who who unbelievably, not understanding that if they just attach themselves to you, it could be very possible that the residue from your blessing could fall on them, but they would rather engage in being angry and jealous over you, so much so that they smiled in your face all the time trying to take your place. They backstab yes. us, and every time David turned around, Saul was there trying to kill him in one form or the other. So when you come to First Samuel chapter twenty, who has a close relationship with Saul's son named Jonathan, takes Jonathan and says, "Why does your father hate me so?" Jonathan says, man, that can't be possible because every time dad is up to something because I'm his son, he would let me know. And David says, no, you don't know your daddy like I know your daddy. Your father doesn't tell you everything and I'm here to tell you, he is out to destroy me. One of the most pertinent things that David says in that 20th chapter is at the end of verse three when David tells his friend Jonathan, this is how crucial the matter is. There isn't but one step between me and death. That's how close your father has gotten to me. Might I add, there have been times when I could have killed your father in return, but that's God's anointing. And I have decided that I'm not going to touch God's prophet, God's anointed servant. Instead, I'll step back and let God do what God does. But I'm telling you, Jonathan, your father is pushing me to the brink. He is working on my last nerve. And and, and I, I just want you to try to find out what's going on with your deranged daddy. Jonathan says, listen to me, you and I are so close. We are friends. We are read that first cha- read that first Samuel chapter 20. And Jonathan says, We are not just like blood relatives, but we are into one another. Scholars, warped mind scholars have misinterpreted Jonathan and David's relationship as being something in terms of sexual. When in reality, Jonathan and David has a covenant relationship one that is so deep that Jonathan says we are willing to give our lives one for another in fact here is what I'll do because I love you so much David and you love me as well I promise you whatever I find out that my daddy is doing I will let you know and David says I'm here to tell you he's out to kill me and Jonathan says here's what we're going to do I will find out from pop, what's going on? You supposed to be at the table tomorrow to break bread with us, don't show up. And when dad starts asking questions, I'll cover you. Sure enough, Saul says, where is David? He hasn't been here in two days. And Jonathan says, they're having a celebration back in David's town and his family needs for him to be there. And Saul says, that's all right for the first day, but this is two days that David has not been at this table. You will never read again in the Bible where there is the actual use of a derogatory, profane word where Saul looks at his son Jonathan and calls him a son of you-know-what. There it is. Read right there in 1 Samuel 20. He tells him, you are the son of a delirious and a demeaned woman that's equivalent to what we call SOBs. And Saul says, You better bring me David because he's not worthy to be alive. And Jonathan says, It won't happen in this lifetime. Jonathan tells David that the way that I'll give you the answer to what's going on, you go out and hide behind the rock in the field, and I'm going to take a young lad with me, and I'm going to shoot three arrows. And if that arrow falls to the ground, and I tell that lad to go there and find it, and it lands right beside him, you in good shape. But if those arrows go beyond you, that's your signal, get out of town. Well, the arrows went beyond him. And David got out of town. David went next to a town that is described in chapter 21 as Nod. He goes to the priest Elimelech and says, listen, I'm hungry. Is there any food that you can give me? And Elimelech says, first of all, what you doing by yourself? You are the king of Israel. How are you traveling alone? You're a warrior. David lied. Watch this. Before you get to the cave, be careful because your trouble will make you lie from time to time. David tells Ahimelech, I'm here on business for Saul. Saul has sent me by myself and my soldiers will meet me in another spot. And Ahimelech said, that sounds strange. I can't imagine why Saul would send you on a war assignment with you all by yourself. Nevertheless, I got some bread, but it's consecrated bread. It's bread that is designated for the priests. I'm about to make the shift because, you know, fresh bread has to be on the altar every morning. You can have this consecrated bread. Your soldiers could have them, providing that they do not have, have not had any relations with anybody. Long story short, David consumes the bread but then he recognizes that the Philistines have also recognized ain't that David the king of Israel what's he doing here in Philistine Sometimes we try to hide out in places where we will not be found and David tried to hide out in enemy camp and then there's something of all people why would David go to where he killed Goliath He goes to Gath and they recognize him and said, man, you better get up out of here quick. David says, I can't move because I don't have any weapon. Do you have any weapon here? And they said, no, but the only thing we do have, interestingly, is the sword that you killed Goliath with. You can take that with you if you desire. David said, no better weapon than to have that. He leaves the Philistine region of Gath and goes to Achish, still in Philistine. And when he gets to Achish, they likewise recognize, is this not David? And David says, once again, I'm trying to hide, but I can't. So read 1 Samuel 21. He acts like he's deranged. So he lets saliva dribbles down his beard, and he starts scratching on the wall like he's lost his mind. And the king says, why did y'all bring me this crazy man? I got enough crazy people in the kingdom alone. Get this guy out of here. And the Bible says in chapter 22, verse 1, that David goes to the cave of Abdullah. And you might say, "What, what, what does that have to do with us? watch what happens. The context is the cave, but what you don't see is the content that will come out of the cave. When we get to chapter 22 and verse 1 and 2, it tells us clearly that when David gets there, his household, his father's household heard about where he was and they came down to meet him. So you have a context, the cave, Now a congregation, look who's beating with him, his family, and look at the others. Everybody who's discontent, everybody who's mad at Saul, everybody who's in debt, everybody who's angry at society. Isn't it interesting how, how should I say, the very breed that you are breeds other breeds. They will find you wherever you are. And listen to what David does. He's gathered around in a cave in the most discontented moment he has recently found himself in life. Then he leaves that cave for a brief moment and watch this, goes to his great-grandmama's home of Moab. Great-grandmama is Ruth goes back and says to the king of Moab, take care of my mother and my father. Here's my point. David says, until I figure out what God is going to do for me. The Bible says, when he is there, he goes back to the stronghold, that's what it's described as, the cave, and he hangs around, no doubt in sorrow, Until an unknown prophet named Gad shows up and tells him, get out of this cave and go back to Judah. Now, that's not important to you, but it would have been important to David because Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, his name means the place of praise. (laughs) Watch this. So in the stronghold, again, you don't see the content, but the content is the actual formation of what we later describe as Psalm 34. And what happens is when the prophet shows up and tells David in his cave stronghold, you can't stay here. Because as the future king of all of Israel, you don't belong in a cave. You belong in the cathedral. So David shifts the cave into a cathedral. Now I'm shifting to Psalm 34. By giving us what he describes to be his transitional words from a cave to a cathedral. Now remember the cave is dark the cave is isolated and the cave represents his pain and David is trying to figure out how do I move forward and yet the prophet shows up and says you gotta leave this dark place and go back to Judah to the place of praise where the cathedral lies and David goes back and tell all who are in the cave with him. I've got the word. Psalm 34. Verse 1. I will bless the Lord. At all times. And his praise. Shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make boast of the Lord. And I will exalt him. Watch this. Oh come let us magnify the Lord together. Let us worship. And glorify his name. David conveyed to those in the cave with him we not only can't stay here, but if we're gonna be here temporarily, let's change it from a cave to a cathedral, to a space where we create sacredness instead of being scared. We enter in being celebrative and bring God right where we are. Here's what I came to tell you if you are in a cave, dark moment, If you got to stay there a little while longer, you might as well turn into your church setting and have church while you're there. You might as well celebrate God and bless God at all times and let his praise forever shall be in your mouth. Ain't no need of you calming down. Ain't no need of you settling down. You might as well worship and celebrate God right there in the cave and change it to a cathedral where you demonstrate how God shows up in spaces that we will never imagine. Here it is. I'm done. That's all I came to say. Watch this. God sometimes will meet you in some of the strangest places to reassure you that he is there for you. I've heard testimonies where people say that I was in the bathroom getting ready for work and all of a sudden I just start thinking about how good God had been to me and God showed up right in the bathroom. And I had church all by myself. Now I know sometimes we got to have a lot of people around us We got to have a choir. We got to have the preach word. We got to have somebody praying. But when you've been in a cave a long time, when you've been in a dark space a long time, when you've been in a place where you didn't know if you were going to come out, and you start thinking about the goodness of Jesus and all that he has done for you, you don't need a choir. You don't need the preacher. You don't need a prayer. You got your own prayer, got your own sermon, make your own choir, and you start celebrating God all by yourself, right there in that space that you are. I've heard stories. In fact, I've had it happen to myself where I'm just riding along in the car And don't let my favorite song come on. And it never fails. Every time I'm in a cave moment, God creates a cathedral where I am to move me from that dark place to a light place. And the way that he does that, he reminds me of the previous storm. Or every time I came close, that's what David was saying, every time I came close to death, God made a way. What should have killed me, the cave, end up being my place of deliverance, the cathedral. And riding in the car, nobody but just me and the music itself. Traffic all around you, you just moving slow anyway, you might as well make the most of the moment. And man, you start hearing that one song or you start thinking about that one scripture that comes alive in that moment and your soul gets happy, your heart gets happy. You start rocking the car and everybody around you is wondering, is that person all right? Are they losing their mind? Yeah, I'm losing my mind because I'm thinking about how grace has kept me and how mercy has watched over me and how goodness has kept me all around. And I can't help it. That's how God transitions my cave into my cathedral. And then I've heard stories where people were saying I was just walking down the street and I happened to look at something and it crossed my mind how good God has been to me, how favored I have been. I started thinking about what could have been, but it has not become. All because God gave me some favor. I just came to tell you, just as David did, Don't allow your cave to be your place of death, but instead let it become your cathedral, which is a place of deliverance. And once you let God do that, and you know what? Sometimes I think God lets us experience just to see if we're going to allow ourselves to leave the cave and move into the cathedral. In that celebratory space where we won't allow darkness to get the best of us. But we'll look unto the hills from which come our help and find light that we might move forward in Jesus' name. Yeah, he comes and pens for us Psalm 34. I'll bless the Lord at all times and his praise will forever be on my mouth. My soul will make boast in the Lord. And then he invites us, let the afflicted hear and rejoice Glorify the Lord with me. Let us magnify his name. And here's a clincher. Here's a shouting point. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. So you can stay in your cave if you want to. But if I got to stay in the cave, I might as well have church while I'm in there. I might as well go on and have a good time and praise my way out of the cave. The prophet shows up. We don't hear about him again until chapter 24 and 25. In fact, he's described as the seer of David. The prophet shows up and tells David, Why are you hanging around here? You can't stay in this stronghold. You got to go back to Judah, the place of praise. Many times when we get into a cave, we don't ever come back to the place of praise. We stay in the cave. We just stay there because we're isolated all by ourselves, and we don't want nobody else to know that we in the cave. I do hate to tell you this. But if you just look around, there's another cave beside yours and just go and knock on the door. You might be surprised who actually comes to the door. What you doing here, child? I'm in a cave just like you are. We might as well celebrate and have church together. Listen, that's why he tells the fellow uh, individuals in the congregation, Oh, come, let us magnify the Lord together. Because we all got caves, but we need some cathedrals where we bring the sacredness of God into that space where it's dark that the Lord might be glorified. Watch the word that David used. I will bless the Lord at all times in the cave and in the cathedral outside and inside sometimes we wait till we get to church to put our shout on why in fact it's good practice all by yourself outside of the cave so when you get in the cave you know how to behave So you don't have to wait. When you get in the cave, that's the wrong time to try to figure out how I'm going to get out. When you start praising God before the cave, then when the cave occurs, that's how you shift it to a cathedral. Because you be like, shoot, this is a good time for me to have church all by myself. Come on, Lord, let's do this thing. And I start singing my favorite hymn. Oh, what a fellowship. Oh, what a joy to that Leaning on the everlasting. Y'all don't know about that. That's an old hymn. You see, I start just regurgitating them old hymns because that gives me strength and hope. And no matter how dark this cave is, God brings some light in the midst of the darkness because God knows how to turn a cave into a cathedral. And that's where we are this morning. No matter how dark your cave is, make it your cathedral, make it your church. Until you get back to church, celebrate where you are. Can't nobody rob your praise from you unless you let them. But in the words of Jay Moss, there's a praise on the inside. And I can't keep it to myself. There's a hallelujah. It's going to come out from the depths of my soul. That's the reason why you better know who it is who watches over you and who makes a way for you every single day. Bless the Lord at all times. And his praise shall continually be in my mouth. See them words, David? Use them words. Those are affirming words. And that's all I'm trying to tell you this morning. That's your cave be your cathedral. Lord bless somebody today with